Last week in Esther chapter 1, we saw that the, the Persian Empire and its emperor, Xerxes, were both deadly serious and preposterous at the same time. You recall the king, he was merry with wine, he commands his queen Vashti to appear, she refuses, he's enraged, he consults with his council of legal advisors, a pretty compliant lot. They declare that Vashti must be deposed and her position must be given to another, who the text says is better than she, that is to one more compliant, one more obedient. And then you get this ridiculous empire-wide decree, making sure that every man is ruler of his house. That's chapter 1. That brings us to this morning's text from Esther 2. And we'll make three points. These points are on the back inside page of your bulletin, if you're not aware of that. The pageant, the promotion, and the plot. So first, the pageant from Esther chapter 2. The text tells us that sometime later, after deposing Vashti, the king's fury had subsided. So this is a guy who stays angry for a long time. By the end of this chapter, four years have gone by. He's petulant. He has a long memory of slights. We've already seen, right, that he's enslaved to his anger. He's enslaved to his advisors as well. And here we're going to see that he's enslaved to women. Right? To live under this man is to live under an emotional child. He remembers, uneasily it seems, it seems like there's an uneasiness here. He remembers Vashti, the text says, and what she did. Doesn't remember what he did. He remembers what she did. And what was decreed about her. I mean, who knows? In the intervening years, he's had a series of unsuccessful wars against the Greeks. Maybe he's back home and exhausted. Perhaps he even misses the queen on some level. But it's not like the king has been sleeping alone. He has, as we will see, a harem. And how much regret can he really have? There can't be much room for regret. Surely he knows that the decrees he issues are binding and can't be revoked. And Mamukan, his legal advisor, has urged to select the new queen. So he has some personal attendants, and they propose a plan to carry out Mamukan's idea. Again, it's an over-the-top, preposterous plan. But what's missing from the empire is proportion and order. There is no proportion, there is no order here. Everything is out of whack. And they say, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Right? They have to be young. They have to be beautiful. They have to be virgins. There's no pretension here, you know, a la, you know, contra the, the Miss America pageant, right? There's no pretension here even of a good character category, right? 
This is, uh, this is not the Miss America. This is Persia's Got Talent. And these girls are not going to be asked about world peace, it turns out, or how they would solve the AIDS crisis. That category has been eliminated from the pageant. Just get girls that are young, beautiful virgins. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province. Remember, this is 100, there's 127 provinces from India to Northeast Africa. And bring all the most beautiful women into the harem. So, they have to be the most beautiful women from across the whole vast empire. Winners, if you, if you want to call them winners, of some local selection process. If you want to be Miss Persia, you first have to be Miss Province of India or something like that. Now, of course, this is not merely a beauty pageant, right? Or a beauty context. The text is discreet, but this is a beauty and sex contest. For that is what going into and pleasing the king will mean. Josephus was first century Jewish historian. He says, he records that 400 virgins were selected in this process. We don't know the number, but presumably it's high. Now, this is actually not unusual for ancient monarchs. But we have to state plainly, this is an appalling abuse of power. It's an appall- These women will be taken from their homes and their families and their towns and their futures and from any other young men that they might want to marry. They will not be asked. They will be arrested, essentially, brought. They don't volunteer. They're going to be conscripted and basically incarcerated. In luxury, to be sure, in luxury, to be sure, in the city center, the citadel of Susa. So the empire owns you, including your body, male or female. If the king wants virgins, he gets virgins. If he wants eunuchs, he gets eunuchs. Herodotus tells us, that 500 boys per year were castrated to serve in Xerxes' court. There's no sloganeering about my body, my choice in the Persian Empire. It's Xerxes' body, it's his choice. And they get these women, and this guy named Haggai is the king's eunuch, he's in charge. And he's to give them beauty treatments. And the young woman who pleases the king will become the queen. It's basically institutionalized sexual coercion. It's rape with a long lead time. Though no doubt, no doubt, some women may have thought that the glamour and the opportunity to be queen, even if it's a long shot, might be worth it, given what life would be like in some corners of the empire. Certainly, people have done much worse than this, or much more than this, for a shot at fame, even in our own country. It's astonishing what people will do of either gender for a shot at glory, or fame, or power. Shocking to no one, this little plan appealed to the king. 
Well, of course it did. He's a narcissist. And he follows it. And then there's this interruption in the text, right after the plan's announced, this surprise, something we haven't heard about until now in the middle of chapter 2. There's a Jew in the citadel, first mentioned in the book. This sudden appearance. Turns out this Jew is of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai. Now, the fact that he's in the citadel means he's a civil servant of some kind and that he has a life of some privilege. Right? Susa is the city. But the citadel of Susa is the government quarter of the city where all the elite live. It's like living in the best part of Manhattan. He's in the best part of Susa. He's in the citadel. So he's a Jew. And, and we're reminded all of a sudden, oh, this is a Jewish book. It's about the covenant people of God who now appear for the first time. It's about them, and as we all know, shortly, it's about their preservation. But there's something very important to note. The narrator does this a lot. He just drops little crumbs. He expects you to pick them up four chapters later. Right? Here's a crumb. Mordecai is of Saul's tribe of Benjamin, and his genealogy is connected to Saul and his house, and that will be very important later. Not now, but later. We'll just note it for now. Verse 6 is very important because it tells you that Mordecai is in exile. He was taken with the nobility from Judah into exile, somewhere around 597 B.C. And the narrator is very um, earnest that we understand that he's in exile. He actually uses the word for exile in verse 6 four times. The root word. Mordecai and his people are permanently in exile. Exile, 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 exile. And so we're left to ask why they did not return from Persia to the promised land, as Jeremiah, as Daniel, as Isaiah, as the prophets had predicted and summoned them to do. It doesn't seem to me, beloved, that we can justify this existence in Persia, given the fact that Cyrus has decreed for the Jews to go back to their land. But think about this. Think about the choice Mordecai faces. He has a very plush... Nice civil service gig with benefits in Persia. And now you want him to go back and build some decimated homeland, which is just burned over. There's no temple. There's no city. There's no jobs. There's no wealth. No thanks. Now, again, Mordecai's parents could have made this decision as well. Mordecai's grandparents probably could have made it. Nobody in his family made the decision to go back. So, you know, sometimes you find yourself in a situation, this is another big picture lesson of Esther, I think, because of failures in previous generations or because of failures of obedience in your life from years ago. Right? This is one of the hidden questions in the book of Esther. Why are you even in this situation? What are you doing in Persia? There's been a sovereign decree that the prophets told you would come to return to the promised land. And your family has ignored it. Even his name, Mordecai, is probably taken from the Babylonian god Marduk. 
So we know right away when we're told there's a Jew named Mordecai that we've got a struggle between two identities going on. He's Jewish, but he's also deeply Persian at this point. Turns out he's got a cousin in the same boat. Her name, Hebrew name is Hadassah, means myrtle. But she also has two identities, two worlds to navigate. Hadassah is the Jewish name, but her Persian name, Esther, that means star. And where does that come from? Well, that comes from the goddess Ishtar. Both of these characters, the heroes of the play, have the names of pagan gods. So, Esther's not only an exile, she's also an orphan, we learn. She's been brought up by Mordecai, her cousin, but apparently much older than her. And she had, we're told in the text, a lovely figure, and she was beautiful to look at. Right, Just the things the shallow, male-dominated empire loves. So that's the pageant. The second point is the promotion. So you get the edict, it goes out, they bring the women to the citadel, they put them under the care of this Haggai, the chief eunuch. Esther's also taken to the king's palace. Notice the text says Esther was taken. She's depicted as passive. I mean, reluctantly, surely, she did not go willingly. One cannot imagine Mordecai putting her forth for this. But he shows no opposition to it. You're going to give your daughter up to this? To this pageant? You're not going to hide her? You're not going to get her out of the country? You're not going to protest? You're, not going to, you're just going to hand her over? I mean, what could he do? Maybe he feels he's got no choice. I mean, certainly there's no Daniel-like resistance here. There's no drawing a line in the sand There's no protest against the regime. Maybe it's like the exile. Who can resist the exile? What are you going to say? I'm not going into exile? And we should be clear here. Going, even going passively, entails violating the food laws. Right? The the, the palace is not kosher. And unlike Daniel and his friends, Esther's not going to protest. In addition to violating the food laws, Esther at Mordecai's command, and we're told this twice for emphasis in this text, once in verse 10, once in verse 20. Esther's going to repress and hide her Jewish identity, which would entail, among other things, no Sabbath observance. And then finally, going entails the absurdity, this extended vanity of 12 months of beauty treatments. Twelve months. Oils and ointments and perfuming. Twelve months which terminate in a night of immorality with a pagan Gentile king. If one is chosen, and this is the best case, and you have long odds, if one is chosen, one ends up married to the king, again, breaking the Torah's commandments. If one is not chosen... After your one-night audition, you see this in verse 14, you would return to the concubine section of the harem. There's no going home for these girls if they lose the pageant. 
They return to the concubine section of the harem to live out a comfortable, long, lonely kind of widowhood. Perhaps waiting on some future night for a summons from the king when he gets tired of the winner. They were probably not allowed to leave the harem ever because sleeping with the king's concubine would be an act of treason and desecration. You'll remember in the books of Samuel, Absalom does just this. He sleeps with David's concubines precisely to desecrate and show his rebellion against the king. Those are your options. And everyone in Persia would know this. And yet neither Esther, who we must view chiefly as a victim here, nor her guardian Mordecai, who I think we can perhaps be a bit more firm with, Neither one utters a word. Remember, they're, they're not, they don't know that they're going to be called to do something heroic later. Nobody says anything. Now, at this point, no one would write a hymn titled, Dare to be an Esther. Now, before this is over, that hymn will be appropriate. But at this point, it's a little murky. And if, lest you think I'm being harsh on Esther and Mordecai, I hope I'm not, because I have no intention of, of that. But so troubling is this history, is the moral choices which seem to be just capitulated to here, that there are, in the Greek, there's the, the original text is Hebrew, but there are later Greek additions to the text, right? And those Greek additions to the text try to exonerate Esther. They have her pray a long and pious prayer to God about how she hates, just how much she hates sharing her bed with an uncircumcised Gentile king. It's the kind of thing that we feel piety requires, right? I said last week none of us would put this book in the canon. But if these later Greek editions were tacked in there, then a few of us might think, hey, let's get that in there. I mean... Notice there's no condemnation. There's no comment at all in the text on Esther's choice or Mordecai's at this point. The narrator does not feel inclined to moralize. He reports. Doesn't mean he approves, but he's just reporting. Just reporting. Now, these justifications, these Greek justifications, they go pretty far. In fact, later in the history of the rabbis interpreting this text, they were so concerned about the immorality of what was going on here that one of them said, Esther did not really sleep with the king. The king just slept with a spirit who looked like Esther. So, it is clear, while the narrator doesn't comment, that he does portray Esther and Mordecai very favorably in light of the whole book. He does do that, and we cannot lose sight of that. It appears at this point that they think resistance is futile. Like, you ask yourself, what's the narrator's point of view here? It's, perhaps, resistance is futile. Sure, you can protest if you don't mind being jailed, or you don't mind being taken anyway. 
Turns out, as I mentioned last week, Esther and Mordecai are going to use other tactics of political resistance in the regime. And all of their decisions, all of them under the hidden hand of God, they're all going to be used to advance God's purposes, and that's what the narrator really cares about. Right? God does not just use your unstained, uh, lovely decisions. He uses them all. So, She's taken passively, but once she gets there, Esther shows a good bit of cunning, right, and a good bit of winsomeness and wisdom and charm. She shows active qualities once she's inside the harem, because we read that she pleased the eunuch and she won. That's an active word. She won favor. She's a pleaser, but she's shrewd and quite capable, it turns out. She gets to her own special food and her own detail of seven female attendants, and she's moved to the best place in the harem. She's poised to win the context. And it seems like Haggai, the eunuch, has essentially handpicked her, that she's his favorite. But remember, we're told again, for the second time in the text, that because Mordecai had told her to, she does not reveal her Jewishness. She's obedient to him. And she's discreet. And the fact that we're told twice means there's an atmosphere of threat. There's a a threat to the Jews, and Mordecai is trying to suppress something. But again, we wonder, wasn't there an atmosphere of threat under Nebuchadnezzar? And the first thing Daniel said is, we're not eating this food. So Mordecai, now he's concerned, right? Right? He wants to figure out what's going on. So the text says every day he walks back and forth near the courtyard of the harem. Which is interesting, right? Because bodily she's safe. You couldn't be any safer than that. One wonders, is he concerned about the moral hazard? Does he have an uneasy conscience? Is he just being an overactive stepfather? You know, also... Esther almost certainly has a backstory because it'd be very hard to hide her Jewishness given the connection she has with Mordecai and given the fact that Mordecai is not going to hide his Jewishness at all in the next chapter. And so you get these comical 12 months of preparation and we're told that when a young woman went to the harem, she could take with her whatever she wanted. Now, I don't know what these these things would entail, but the the, the point seems to be what the woman chose to go into the king with would say something about her judgment. It would give the king something to evaluate perhaps his future queen on. And Esther very wisely says, I'll take whatever Haggai wants me to take, the chief eunuch. He'll know best. He knows the king the best. And it's in his best interest, by the way, to get this ridiculous pageant over. Remember, this little pageant here, it's going to last 400, 500, 600 nights. And you've got a juvenile and impatient king. And so even before she goes in, the text tells us Esther won favor with everyone she saw. That reminds us of Joseph, that God's hand is upon her hidden hand, in a deeply corrupt environment, God's blessing nonetheless follows and is upon her. And she's taken to the king in the seventh year of his reign. Again, four years have gone by since Vashti was deposed. 
So now you have one night, the fate of the Jewish nation and the salvation of the world hang on one Jewish girl's immoral night with a pagan king. That's the thread. And remarkably, she wins the king's favor above all other virgins. She's not sent to the concubines, and the king wants no more auditions. Right? And without delay, she's crowned queen, and Vashti's replaced. Esther's promoted. It's interesting, right? There's a banquet after this called Esther's Banquet. It sort of anticipates the Feast of Purim, which the Jews celebrate to this day, which will be instituted at the end of the book. There's a holiday proclaimed when she's king, and a bunch of tax relief is given. Food for the poor, royal liberality so everyone can celebrate. You know what's interesting about this? The blessing of the Jews, even when they're hidden, as the promise to Abraham stated, brings blessing to the whole world. Esther's promotion leads to the blessings of God being poured out on the common people in the whole empire. Finally, at the end, the third point, there's a plot. Mordecai uncovers this plot. He's now sitting in the king's gate, which means he's something of a judge. I mean, he seems to be, if you look at the book as a whole, as a sort of mid to high level official. He uncovers this assassination plot that's hatched by two of the king's eunuchs. He tells Esther, she tells the king, she gives credit to Mordecai. Interesting, right? Because she's not afraid that that will expose her Jewishness. She's unafraid of that. Sometimes you not only submit to the regime, sometimes, like Mordecai, you actively support the regime. Because the alternative, in this case a coup, is worse. Mordecai is not just submitting to the regime here, he's defending it. They investigate the incident, right, and they they hang the two co-conspirators on a a gallows, which would probably be a pole, which is the the Persian way of execution. They sometimes would kill you first and just impale you on the pole, sometimes just kill you by impalement on the pole. And all of this gets recorded, again, here's another crumb. All of this gets recorded in the book of the annals or the chronicles in the presence of the king. And it sits right there in the story, just like Mordecai's connection to Saul. It sits there like a ticking time bomb in the story. So let us, let us conclude. First, I do not think there's any way to extricate Esther and Mordecai, especially Mordecai. Esther certainly should be viewed primarily as a victim, I think. But as I said, attempts to say that they were not unfaithful border on the ridiculous. It seems that we have to say that they either felt resistance was futile or they felt they could disobey the Torah for tactical reasons. But having said that, I want to be clear. I think we should be deeply cautioned by the narrator's silence. He goes very gently with them. 
right? They think there's no reasonable choice. That resistance would be useless. And I think we ought to ask ourselves before condemning them what we would have done. In one sense, they just sort of find themselves in this position. And yet we have to be careful to say, we have to be careful to say, if you're willing to suffer the consequence, full obedience to God is always possible. But sometimes it is not clear exactly where the line you must make your stand on is to be drawn. I think we all experience that in life. Now, the narrator, he just doesn't care about their inner turmoil over this. He cares about God's hidden hands, using them to save the Jews. And that teaches us something, I think. Right? Not the least of which is to not moralize and judge other people's situations from a distance. But if the narrator doesn't judge Esther and Mordecai, then you should be very, very slow to judge. He's not hovering moral censor, and neither should we be. That's the first thing we learn from the narrator's silence, I think. The second thing to learn is this. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, as they say. Right? You have this invincible, provident hand, and it chooses weak and foolish and even morally compromised instruments. Right? In this case, God is choosing instruments that made tactical political choices that they thought were genuinely wise, perhaps. You know, and this is really what I want to get to here this morning is whatever compromises or tactical choices Esther and Mordecai have engaged in, it does not determine, it does not thwart the future script God is writing with and through them. And that should be a great comfort to you. It is a mistake, beloved, to make Esther and Mordecai moral heroes from the beginning of this story. In one very deep sense, there are no moral heroes in the Christian tradition. Because there's a naked, lacerated, broken man at the center of it, and he's not there because there are moral heroes wandering around. But you know what I mean. Yes, they will behave honorably and even heroically later. But these early choices don't determine the future, and that's important. Because we're moral compromisers who God has not given up on. Who God continues to use to advance his cause. Maybe like Esther, you married the wrong person. Maybe you end up married to an unbeliever. Esther did. Or maybe you had a broken marriage. Or maybe you chose what looks like the wrong career. Right? The church is full of these situations. Life is full of them. Maybe you're a victim of circumstances which appear to be beyond your control. You inherited something from your parents or your grandparents, you just find yourself in Persia up against forces that you can't seem to control. And so you find some way to get along or to cut a corner or to cheat. 
Maybe you've hid your Christian identity when you shouldn't have hid it. Or maybe you've unveiled it when it would have been wiser to conceal it. Who among us haven't made both of these mistakes? Maybe you didn't throw the dietary laws under the bus, but some other portion of God's commandments have been neglected or cast aside. Or perhaps the opposite error. Maybe you've tactically insisted on things that were really optional. See, it turns out that our lives are full of not only moral compromises, that we know. They're full of tactical mistakes. We make tactical mistakes all day. Some of them are pretty big. Right? That's what parenting is. Here's a summary of parenting from me. A a collection of tactical mistakes. It's astonishing that any of these kids come through this sane. We're making tactical mistakes all the time. Right? We look back and think, I did not handle that well. I could have done better. And I'm not trying to be funny. These things have moral weight to them. They accumulate in a life. But here's the thing that's important to see in the story. Yet, virtue can be cultivated, shall be cultivated, and can carry the day. So you slept with a pagan king. So you stood by when your daughter was co-opted into a situation. The story isn't over. Right? The narratives of your lives are not over until they're over. That was Yogi Berra, I think, who said that. Um, But God can, and he is, this is the thing, he is using the broken situations. It's precisely the ambiguity around Mordecai and Esther that gets them into the palace that saves the Jews. It's not like God says, I'm going to work around the moral ambiguity of these choices. It's, I'm going to use them. I don't justify them. I don't condemn them either in the narrative. But those things are going to be used to advance the righteousness and truth of God in the earth. And the reason for that is, unlike this parody of a beauty contest you know, that Esther undergoes, God has undertaken in Jesus Christ a long-term, painful project of making us and our compromised ugliness beautiful. Fit for the king. The word and the sacraments, you know what those are? Those are divine cosmetics, divine perfumes, because we stink and we need to smell better. And we have all these spots that have to be removed. He who was glorious for our sakes became ugly so that through his ugliness you could be made beautiful. Do not lose heart over your station in life. Think of what Esther's condition in the palace would have been. Young, frightened, ripped from her family, under the thumb of the empire. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart over your past choices, over your tactical decisions, because like the narrator, your God is very kind and very patient and very gentle, and he passes over our flaws in silence. He sees us in Jesus Christ. Like Esther, then, we have a king's banquet to attend. 
And we're going to get there, you know, without exploitation or without coercion. We're going to get there under the hand of Jesus Christ. Praise God for his mercy and for his invincible, overriding, beautifying providence. Amen.